0: forget. But for some of you, shame might be at the very forefront of your mind. You may even be experiencing shame at this very moment. For some of you, your shame may have been a public spectacle. But for others of us, it may be a deep, dark secret that we have tried to keep hidden from everyone for months and even years. We started with this question because disgrace is an important context of the book of Isaiah. You see, Isaiah chapters 40 to 66 are written to a nation that is deep in shame and disgrace. The chapters are written to Israel from the perspective that Israel is living in exile. Another country, Babylon, has invaded them, and so Israel are now living in a land that is not their own. But for the Israelites, being exiled was more than just living in another country. For the Israelites, land wasn't just where they lived, land was a very important basis for who they were, a core of their identity. And so being kicked out of their land when they were exiled, kicked out of their land, the promised land, the land that God, Yahweh, had promised them, was deeply shameful for them. I mean, writers writing during the exile frequently referred to themselves with terms of shame and disgrace. For example, Lamentations 5 says, "'Remember, O Lord, what has befallen us. Look and see our disgrace. Our inheritance has been turned over to strangers, our homes to foreigners.'" It's in this context of shame and disgrace that we come to the third of the four servant songs in the book of Isaiah. These servant songs are passages that speak about a servant that God is going to be sending. In Isaiah 42 Eugene taught us how this servant is God's gentle servant. And last week in Isaiah 49 Ian taught us how God will use this servant to draw the nations to himself. Today we're going to be building on the last two sermons. We're going to be covering three things about the sermon about the servant. What the servant models, what the servant offers, and how are we to respond to God? And his servant. These are the points in the handout, so you can follow along with me. Let's start with the first point. The servant is the model disciple for us to follow. What does he model for us? He is, first, he is a model of dependence on God. The servant's entire life is saturated with dependence on God for everything. During the scripture reading, some of you may already have spotted these phrases throughout verses 4 to 9. The Lord has given me, and He awakens my ear in verse 4. The Lord has opened my ear in verse 5. And the Lord helps me, which appears in verse 7 and verse 9. The servant is completely dependent on God. But a servant isn't just a model of dependence. He's also a model of obedience. Look with me at verse 4 in your Bibles. To be like those who are taught... The phrase at the start and the end of verse 4 means to be like a disciple. And we see that the servant has placed his entire body, represented by his mouth, his ear and his face, at God's disposal. He says what God wants him to say, he hears what God wants him to hear, and he does what God wants him to do. And you notice it, right? He does this all the time, morning by morning, as it says in the middle of verse 4. But the servant's obedience isn't just in every part of what he says, hears and does. It's in every situation he follows God into, even into situations of great suffering and shame and cost. Let me read verse 6 for you again in your Bibles. I gave my back to those who strike, and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. You would agree with me that verse 6 is a picture of great disgrace, emotional and physical suffering. Our servant is flogged, spat on, mocked, and had his beard pulled. And you need to know that the beard at the time was a sign of freedom and respect. So to pull out the beard was an act that was deeply humiliating to the victim. But you also notice with me in this, in this verse that, that the, the servant isn't some passive victim of these shameful acts. No, you you see that he actively subjects himself to the suffering. Look look at verse 6 again. He gives his back to those who strike. He gives his cheeks to those who pull out the beard. He does not hide his face. You see, the servant's obedience, like his dependence, is utterly complete. But if verse 6 is a picture of extreme suffering for the servant, it's contrasted with verse 7, which gives us a picture of the servant's extreme trust in the midst of this suffering. The servant is a model of trust for us. How he views himself and how he chooses to act are not in any way based on what he's going through, but they are based on God's word and God's character. Look at me at verse 7. God helps him. Therefore, he has not been disgraced. Therefore, he has set his face like a flint, which is a picture for us of resolution and determination. Therefore, he shall not be put to shame. His identity and actions, past, present, and future, are centered on God. And so, we've seen how the servant is the model disciple for us to follow who models perfect dependence, perfect obedience, and perfect trust in God. But if the story stopped here, if Christianity was all about following the model disciple, following some moral code, Christianity would be a religion for the strong and the proud, and not the weak and the ashamed. To the weak and the ashamed, being reminded of the need to follow the model disciple, to follow a model code, to meet a perfect standard would bring condemnation instead of comfort. A reminder of how weak and inadequate we are because we know that we could never meet that standard. And this is how it was for the Israelites in exile they were in exile and disgrace and shame, kicked out of God's promised land because they did not live as the servant did, because They didn't depend, obey, and trust in God. In fact, God explicitly says that the servant is exactly who Israel is supposed to be. He calls His servant Israel in Isaiah 49 verse 3. The servant isn't actually just who Israel is supposed to be. He's who all of us are supposed to be. This morning, you might be able to identify with the Israelites In exile. Instead of seeing the servant as the model disciple to follow, all you see, all we see, is a painful reminder of the model disciple we have failed to be. To a person deep in shame, the last thing we want is someone to remind us of how far we've fallen and how we've only ourselves to blame. but well, we thank God that He didn't just send His servant to model for us how to live. He also sent His servant to live the model life on our behalf, to be the model disciple we could never be, so that we can get the blessings that only the model disciple can. You see, as Eugene and Ian pointed out in previous passages, and you may, have already, you may already have spotted it, the servant in the passage, of course, it points us to Jesus, part of God's perfect plan. Jesus lived for us the model life, not not to condemn the disgraced, but to offer strength and hope to the shamed and disgraced. So what does the servant offer the shamed and disgraced? Let's start by looking at the servant's offer of strength for the weary. Verse 4 tells us that God uses His servant to sustain with the word him who is weary. This adds texture to the wonderful promise in Isaiah 40 we heard in the call to worship, even youth shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted, but they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. See, God promises strength, and He uses His Word and His servant to give strength to the weary. Now, what does weariness mean? If you've never felt weary before, let me recommend to you CrossFit. Believe it or not, Jess and I <laughs> tried out CrossFit for a while. And, and let me tell you, right, if you want a reali- before you try CrossFit, if you want a realistic picture of what CrossFit is like, don't go about watching John Chia's videos and pictures on social media, carrying great barbells with great weights on each end. If you want a picture of CrossFit, look at the people who refuse to be videoed. People such as myself and Jess, who started off not even with not with barbells but with plastic poles <laughs> graduating to barbells with no weights on them but what what we learned is that crossfitters pride themselves in driving themselves to the point of weariness being on the pull-up bar in that push-up position with weight on your shoulders sweat pouring down your face doing reps until you've nothing left until try as you might, like our friend in the picture, <laughs> you can't even stand up, you can't even squeeze out one more rep. That's what it means to be weary, guys. To feel like you've got nothing left, like you're on the verge of collapse, maybe you've even collapsed, but you can't go on. God's Word asks us today, are you weary from the effects of shame and sin? Are you in a situation where you feel like you can't go on? Like you're about to collapse? Maybe you, like the psalmist in Psalm 6, have flooded your bed with tears and drenched your couch with crying. Would you, would we come to God's word to strengthen ourselves this morning? Would we come to Jesus to refresh ourselves? We take Jesus up in His promise, on His promise in Matthew 11 where He says, Come to Me, all who labour and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. But for those in shame, those who have ever been in shame, sometimes what we're looking for isn't strength but hope. What we need isn't the strength to get up each morning what we need is a reason to get up each morning, the promise that it's going to get better. Let me tell you today, Jesus, God's servant, offers us, offers us not just strength, but He offers us hope, hope of a day of no more shame. Let's turn back to the passage where we, in verses 6-7, to seven, we saw that the servant has taken on shame, but he himself is not put to shame. Now we move on to verses 8 to 9 and the the scene changes for us where we're transported to the middle of a courtroom and the servant is on trial. But it's not an ordinary trial. The servant isn't nervously waiting for the outcome of the trial. No, the confidence that the servant has in God that we saw in verse 7 carries on into verses 8 and 9. Look look with me at the tone and the words used in verse 8. The servant is so confident, he invites anyone who would challenge him, all adversaries and those who would contend with him, to essentially bring it on. He declares in verse 9, Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who will declare me guilty? How can the servant be so confident? We get the answer in the first line of verse 6. He's confident because he who vindicates him is near. He who vindicates him is near. Let's unpack that phrase a bit. To vindicate means to acquit of all charges, to be declared righteous, to be declared not guilty. Some translations, instead of the word vindicate, use the word justify, which is also a legal term. He who justifies me is near. And the idea that God is willing to be near to the servant is a picture of God being satisfied with the servant's righteousness and so is willing to stand next to him in court. What any defendant wouldn't give, to be able to stand in the dock of the courtroom before the judge, but be utterly confident that the judge wouldn't find him guilty. For any of us who's ever done anything shameful, any of us who's ever felt like we're in the dock of a courtroom, waiting to receive judgment from the world, What we wouldn't give, to be able to turn back time, to erase the shame of what we've brought upon ourselves, and undo the hurt we've inflicted on others, to be declared righteous once again, for our slate to be wiped clean, and for the judge to say, Not guilty. The good news of the gospel is that anyone who puts their faith in Jesus, God's servant, can have the same utter confidence in their status before God that a servant has, even in the midst of shame and sin. You see, the account of the servant taking on shame in verse 7 points us to Jesus' the servant's crucifixion on the cross, where he would take on the shame of the world. There's lots of passages that, that teach us this, but let's look at just one from Matthew 15, verse 18 to 20. And they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews! And they were striking his head with a reed, and spitting on him, and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak, and put his own clothes on him. And they led him out to crucify him. You see, on the cross, Jesus took on the shame of everything we have and will do wrong. So that, as we're told in Romans 10, verse 11, everyone who believes in Jesus will not be put to shame. In fact, so great is Jesus' love for us and his obedience to God that he gave his back to those who strike. He gave his cheeks to those who pull out the beard. He did not hide his face. He went to the cross so that he could say, it is finished. So that he could say, whoever you are, whatever you've done, whatever mess you've made, no matter how deep your shame runs, it is finished. Your shame is no more. You are righteous. You are no longer guilty. And if you've been running away, like the father to the prodigal son, you can come home. You can come home any day. Because any day you put your faith in Jesus, you are righteous. Your shame is no more. If, my brothers and sisters, if you remember nothing else from today, remember this. In Christ, your shame is no more. And, but remember this, Jesus didn't just take away the shame of one or two particular things that you've done wrong. If that's all you're asking God to erase, regardless how big the wrong is, You're asking, may may I suggest you're asking too little of God. In fact, if all we want from God is comfort in this life, to paraphrase C.S. Lewis, we are far too easily pleased. Because Jesus didn't go to the cross to die just to take away the shame of one or two or even a thousand things we've done wrong, or just so that we can feel good about ourselves in this life. Jesus died to take away the shame that comes from who we are born as, sinners before God. Jesus died to take away eternal shame, the shame that entered the world the moment Adam and Eve sinned against God. He came to take away eternal shame that has eternal consequences. The shame that you're feeling from doing something wrong is just a symptom of this problem. It's like a cough that points to a cancer. You can treat the cough to make yourself feel more comfortable, but you're still going to die of the cancer. You see, until our cancer has been transformed by the gospel, until we have moved from being sinners to righteous, everything else in our lives will just be a cough that points us to a deeper problem. So how can we respond? Verse 10 tells us that we're all walking in darkness, living life in shame and exile. Verses 10 and 11 give us two ways to respond, a positive way and a negative way. To rely on God or to rely on ourselves. Let's start from back to front. Let's start with the negative example in verse 11. Verse 11 paints for us the picture of someone who tries to navigate the darkness by creating light for himself or herself. Take a look at verse 11 with me all you who kindle a fire who equip yourselves with burning torches walk by the light of your fire and by the torches you have kindled you see the wrong way to deal with the darkness of shame and sin is to rely on ourselves for light true shame came into the world precisely because we chose to rely on ourselves like when eve decided that she knew better than god had told her and decided to take her own life into her own hands. Trying to deal with shame on our own without God will never work because it's our decision to rely on ourselves rather than God that got us into this mess in the first place. And God tells us in verse 11 that the people who rely on themselves will continue to feel the effects of sin and shame. So what are we to do instead? Verse 11 gives us the posit verse 10 I'm sorry gives us the positive example. We are called to fear, obey, trust and rely on God and his servant Jesus while in the darkness. Fear, obey, trust and rely. This means to put our faith in ser- in the servant Jesus, to trust him when he says he has come to take away our shame. Have we put our faith in God's servant, Jesus. But you also notice that fearing, obeying, trusting and depending are exactly what Jesus modeled for us as the perfect disciple. Because true faith in God results in fearing, obeying, trusting and relying. Jesus modeled this for us so that He can be who we are supposed to be. And so we who have put our faith in Christ can fear, obey, trust and rely like the model disciple did. We are saved by the model disciple so that we can be like the model disciple. Let me try and flesh out how we can apply this with three questions. Three questions. Firstly, do we see our need for Jesus? During the the reflection question, when we asked when was the last time you felt shame or disgrace, what was the first thing that came to your mind? If your response was, don't have lay, then may I suggest that you haven't even begun to understand the depth of your sin. And we won't see the need and wonder of God's grace until we see ourselves as disgraced. Jesus said, it's not the healthy who need the doctor, but the sick. And only until we see that we are sick You will see the need for our divine doctor. But if your response was to think about the shame of something that you've done, let me encourage you to look beyond the one wrong thing. I'm not saying that it's not important to deal with your immediate shame, especially if your shame has become toxic and paralyzing. In fact, you may even need to talk to a professional about it. But what we are saying this morning is that the shame we feel from one particular sin actually points us to a deeper shame from our status as sinners. And as a Christian, once you've realized that your shame as a sinner has been taken away, it will transform the way you view all other shame in your life. And to those of us who feel so lost in shame, so far away from Christ, who think we're beyond help, if Jesus can take away the shame of all sin, that means there's no shame So great that he did not already take to the cross for you. Tim Keller described the gospel like this We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. The song we sang just now, Oh Come, Oh Come, Emmanuel, is a cry of God's people living in shame and exile. Desperate, desperately crying out for Emmanuel to come and rescue them from shame. Do we see Jesus that way? Do we cry out for Emmanuel with the same desperation? This Christmas season, do we see Christmas that way? Do we see our need for Jesus? The second question is this, are we honest about our shame and disgrace, both with ourselves and each other. If we, trust, if we want to trust in God rather than walk by the light of our own fire, this means that we have to be honest about our shame and disgrace and sin and temptation with ourselves and other people in the church. So there are some sins and shame that are easy to be honest about, but let's be honest with ourselves. There are some that are not so easy to be honest about, but regardless of this. God's Word tells us this morning, we need to be honest with ourselves and we need to learn to trust God in opening up to the support and accountability of trusted people in the church. Otherwise, we'll be walking around like the person in verse 11, walking around in denial and darkness, walking around by the light of our own fires, artificially strong, just so we don't have to lose faith at the expense of obeying God. I say this from the position of weakness and experience rather than strength. I have had and still struggle with various temptations and sins, like a need for affirmation that I've shared with my care group, like selfishness, and even with moral sin, like struggling with pornography. And one of my personal takeaways from this passage, the reason why I, even though it's difficult for me, I share this over the pulpit, is because this passage, my response to this passage is to resolve, to try to be honest with myself and others about the struggles I have, to trust God that it is not what other people think of me that matters, it's what He thinks of me. And when He looks at me, He sees a person who can have complete confidence in His vindication. But of course, for the church to learn to be honest about our shame and disgrace with one another, we need to treat one another with grace. I've grown up in GBC, so I've been in GBC for 29 years. I've heard many words used to describe our church, Some good words, some not-so-good words. I don't know about you, but I have never heard the word grace used to describe our church. In fact, more than once I have heard people say that it's ironic, isn't it, that we are called Grace Baptist Church Friends, when we are told of someone else's sin and shame, either from that person or when we hear about it, do we respond with love and grace? Do we seek to build the person up, like it says in Galatians 6.1? Do we rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep? Actually, Actually, never mind... Responding to someone else's sin and shame. In general, do we treat one another with love and grace in all circumstances? Do we seek to build up rather than tear down? There's very simple litmus tests. In your CG or in any any other group, when someone shares about a sin that they're having, what's your first response? Do you grieve with that brother or sister? Or do you say, hey, not me? Or do you say, hey, you know why the person's like that? Because the parents are like that. Because the person's like that. See, la, I told you, you go back and you tell your friends, you tell your children, you tell your parents, hey, you know, ah, this person. Ah, we laugh because it's so true, isn't it? We don't respond with the way that the servant responds to us. You see, if we realize the depth of our shame and disgrace without Christ, that should and would transform the way we interact with others. I was talking to a young Christian brother who was sharing with me that he was struggling with a particular temptation to sin. He hadn't sinned, but he was struggling with the temptation. But you know what he told me? He told me that for the longest time he wasn't struggling with the temptation or the sin itself. I mean, that was a problem, but primarily what he was struggling with was his worry about how God would judge him. His worry about how the church, which models God, will judge him. I was so ashamed when I heard this. And may I I put it to you, to us, GBC family, that we should be ashamed that this happens to even one person in our church, that people are afraid to be open and transparent about their shame and disgrace and sin and temptation. See, no church should be a place for the strong and the proud. Any church, our church, should be a place, a safe place for the weak and the ashamed. Because that's who, what we all are, whether we realise it or not. It should be a place where we are comfortable to share about our shame and struggles. This morning, dear brothers and sisters, let's no longer respond to sin and, with shock and judgement and gossip. Let's respond with grace and love, to comfort instead of condemn, to love rather than lord over, to build up and restore rather than to tear down. Let's treat each other as we should, as we are, all of us sinners in need of a saviour, all of us disgraced in need of grace. Will you bow your heads with me? Before I pray, I'd like to give us some time to come to God on our own. Maybe for some of you, God has used His Word today to unlock a flood of shame that you thought you had managed to lock away for years. But now, the door is open and the shame is flooding out. Maybe for some of you, shame has been there for a long time. Shame might have become toxic. Shame might have been paralyzing you. may have been paralyzing us. Would we now bring our shame before the Lord, thanking Him for His grace? for His servant who gave His back to those who strike, gave His cheek to those who pull out the beard, who did not hide His face from disgrace and spitting, so that we can have confidence. My friends, no matter how shameful the situation you're in, God has redeemed it and so, even in the mess of shame and sin and temptation, He promises that He can glorify Himself in this shame. You may not have intended it that way, but God can use it for His glory. And I promise you that you can look back in 5, 10, 15 years and you would rejoice in the Redeemer who took what you did not intend for His glory and has made it a glorious sacrifice for Himself. There is no shame too great that Jesus did not already take it with Him to the cross. Abba, we are all of us sheep that have gone astray. We are all of us ashamed in need of a saviour, disgraced in need of grace, even when we don't realise it. Abba, this morning I pray for any person who is feeling weary, who feels like they can't go on, who feels like, the judge of the world is casting judgment on them who feels like they can't even perhaps even leave their house because of the shame of what they have done. Abba, we pray that we will glory in our Redeemer. I pray that your Holy Spirit will soften their hearts to see that in Christ we have vindication. In Christ we are no longer guilty. In Christ no matter what we have done no matter how great the mess no matter how deep the shame for all those who are running away we can come home I pray that as we sing the next song that we'll be singing it to ourselves we'll be singing it, we'll be crying it out we'll be shouting it out loud to each other because it was at the cross at the cross that we first saw the light and the burden of our hearts have been taken away so that we can declare with great confidence like your servant, that we can and we are happy all the day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let us stand and sing our closing hymn.